Make sure that you grab a hymnal if you haven't already. They're in the back there on the cart because we need to sing our hymn of the month, which is 521. So grab a hymnal, hymn 521. Stanzas 1, 5, and 6. Five twenty-one, one five and six. <coughs> okay. 521, Christ the Lord of hosts unshaken. Christ the Lord of hosts unshaken by the devil's seething rage thwarts the plan of Satan's minions wins the strife from age to age. Conquers sin and death forever slams them in their steely cage. Swift as lightning falls the tyrant from his heavenly perch on high. At the word of Jesus' victory floods the earth and fills the sky. Wounded by a wound eternal, now his judgment draws drawn nigh. Jesus, send your angel legions when the foe would us enslave. Hold us fast when sin assaults us. Come then, Lord, your people say, Overthrow at last the dragon, Send him to his fiery grave. Okay, let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray, Almighty and everlasting God, Give us an increase of faith, hope, and charity, and that we may obtain what you have promised. Make us love what you have commanded. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Okay, uh, verse of the week is from Psalm 19. Psalm 19, 1. Let's speak this together. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. Okay, there's some things here that we want to highlight. First of all, heavens and firmament. What does this sound like? Creation. Creation. God created the heavens and He creates the firmament. Now, the heavens declare and the firmament shows. Now, uh, these things declare and show, both according to nature and according to content. Okay? So, this means then that how the heavens declare the glory of God, first is by the nature of the fact that they exist. Abraham Lincoln has a really great quote, or at least it's attributed to him, it's ascribed to him, What's where he says, say Abraham Lincoln has a quote. Okay. Uh, and he said, I can understand how a man looking upon the earth at the deeds of mankind would not believe in God. But I cannot understand how that same man could look into the heavens and still deny that there is a God. Uh, now, when you look at the glory of creation, if you study any kind of 
biology or medicine or science and you realize how complicated uh, the human body is, how complicated your little cells are, and you look around the world and see how complicated creation is, and then when you start looking into the heavens and you see how complicated even that is, how vast and how complex and how intricately designed all of that is, according to its nature, declares the glory of God. Why? Because who else can make something like that? Nobody can make something like that. Now they'll tell you that evolution made something like that, but that's about the equivalent of putting all of the pieces of a 747 jumbo jet into a junkyard and hoping that someday a tornado will come through the junkyard and assemble the jet. Okay? It just doesn't work. Or putting 600 pages of paper in a room with a typewriter and 14 chimpanzees and praying that one day they'll type out a dissertation. It just doesn't work. Okay? So the, the complexity declared the glory of God, the complexity of heavens and the firmament and of the earth, and also the content. The content proclaims the glory. Because who lives in the heavens? Okay. Uh, well, yes, but I'm thinking of created beings. The angels, yeah, hey, we're on, this is our angel month. The angels live in the heavens, and what do they do? They declare the glory of God, Isaiah 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of Sabaoth. Okay, and on the firmament, what does the content of the firmament do? What do you do? You praise God. You show forth His handiwork. You declare His glory. The seas and the mountains clap their hands. Okay? So all of creation praises, uh, praises the Lord. Now, uh, okay, I think that's enough. Let's speak this again. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. Okay, Catechism. Part 2 of the first article of the Creed. What is the first article of the Creed? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. What does this mean, part 2? He also gives me clothing and shoes, food and drink, house and home, wife and children, land, animals, and all I have. He richly and daily provides me with all that I need to support this body and life. Okay, remember what we talked about last week. He still takes care of them. He has made you and all of your parts, your eyes, your ears, your members, your uh, reason and senses, and he still takes care of them. And how does he take care of them? See, this is how you can split the catechism up. Uh, midweek, kids especially, if you're learning this, which you will be, um, when, you, when you divide it up, it makes it easier. So what does this mean? Well, he does all of this for you. Well, what, how does he do these things for me? How does he take care of me? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because he gives you clothing and shoes, house and home, land, animals, wife and children, and all that you have. Now, what does this sound like? House, home, food, drink, clothing, shoes, land, animals, all that you have. What does it sound like? Okay, yeah, the commandments. Exactly. See, uh, these things don't exist all by themselves. So the first article gifts are also the same gifts that are protected by the Ten Commandments. You don't covet somebody else's things. You don't steal somebody else's things. You seek to uh, help them preserve what they have. What else does it sound like? Well, yes, and when do we pray for our daily needs to be met? In the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. So the Lord's Prayer, the first article of the Creed, and the Ten Commandments, all are talking about the same thing. Um, now, there's two things that I want to point out here. First of all, there's two things going on. First of all, food and drink, house and home, wife, children, land, animals. Is that list exhaustive? No. No, it is not. That's like an example. Here are the kinds of things that God does and gives you to help and continue preserve your body and soul. It's not exhaustive. However, when it says he richly and daily provides me with all that I need, is that list exhaustive? It is. The word all that I need makes that exhaustive. Well, all that you need. See, that's the difference, not all that you want. So your brand new Corvette might not be all that you need. Um, 
And that is a good segue into this next little bit because the Lord will always provide you with what you need. This is one uh, avenue then that causes the uh, commandments to be what they are. Don't covet the ninth and tenth commandments. You don't need to covet. Why not? According to the first article of the creed, why need you not covet? Because God is giving you everything that you need. You might not have everything you want, but God is giving you everything that you need. And if you are tempted even to think that all you need refers only to goods, because it's easy to look at this and say, well, I live in poverty. I don't really have enough food, I don't have enough clothes, and I barely live in a shanty. I live in a van down by the river. How can you possibly say that God is providing me with everything I need? Because it certainly doesn't feel like it. Well, everything you need doesn't only refer to your physical needs. He's also created your reason and senses and your soul. Which means that anytime God takes care of you, there's also a spiritual aspect to that. So not only does he take care of your body, but he also takes care of your soul. And sometimes the thing that you need is the word of God and the sacraments of God, which he does daily and richly provide for you. Okay? Questions? All right. Oh, uh, Bruce. Yes. Children, you can go downstairs. Sorry, Bruce. I, I don't want to... I would want to keep it from the class. So go ahead. And then I'll get to your question here, Bruce. <laughs> well, I don't know. See, you're, you ask good questions. <laughs> Uh, so, I'll say this though, I think anytime when you look at something that somebody else has and you say, I wish I had fill in the blank, I think that you're, you're you at the very least have your toe up against the line. <laughs> so, well, <laughs> I, think, I think a statement like that has come out of just about all of our mouths at one time or another. This is off the subject, and I'm sorry about it. That's okay, I love off-subject questions. Well, my niece was confronted with a situation at a convenience uh, <laughs> store okay. where she had on one of her shirts, um, fake, or it was um, just, Jesus. just Jesus. That's what it said. Someone okay. came in and said, you have to cover it up because it offends me. And she was the uh, only one in there working. So her manager and stuff was wet. So she covered it up. Mm -hmm. I told her, which, you know, she's on, she's 20, and I said, don't cover it up. So, you know, I said, your soul is more important than that person telling you to, that it offends her. Now, how does a 20-year-old who, you, you know what I'm trying, I can say what I'm trying to say, but I don't think I have enough, I don't want to say knowledge, but how to tell her to, because she was scared she'd lose her job if she didn't cover it up. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think I see where you're going here. Yeah, so how can you tell someone at that age, or even younger, even our age, it would have been me, I said, well, go somewhere else, because I'm not covering it up. You know? So, how do you tell someone that's, a good, uh, that's another good question. So I need to, we need to back up a little bit before I can answer your question because there's something that we need to talk about before that, and that's the aspect of the fourth commandment. <clears throat> the fourth commandment, okay? Um, as you know, the fourth commandment applies to anybody in authority over you. So in a case like that, a practical application of the fourth commandment is this. Are there guidelines in place by my employer that dictate what I can and cannot wear? And if there are, then follow what they say. And if there aren't, 
and you are permitted to wear whatever you want to wear, then wear whatever you want to wear. So my assumption moving forward here then to address this situation is that there's no kind of a policy that the, uh, the sense is you just, as long as you're clothed, <laughs> uh, it's going to be okay. So. Yeah, and I guess my understanding of this is that a, a patron who's there to purchase items at the store or just to purchase gas is demanding that she... Yeah, so the thing... This is a detrimental aspect of Christianity in the modern culture. That Christians are quick to apologize for being Christian. Because we're now in a culture that is perpetually offended. You can look at somebody across the street the wrong way and be labeled a bigot and uh, be deemed a hateful person and a defensive person. Skin has grown very thin. Um, and especially towards Christians has the world and the country become quite hostile. So. Um, the worst thing that Christians can do then in this culture is apologize for being Christians. That being said, the thing you don't want to do as a Christian is run around like Hulk Hogan cramming Jesus down the throats of everybody you see. Doggone it, I'm a Christian and you're going to be one too. You're going to look at me, you're going to look at Jesus, you're going to love him just like I do. You know, that's a bad thing for Christians to do. So is what the people in my uh, college years used to do right there on the square of the campus, which was hold signs and yell into megaphones going, You're all going to hell. You who are dressed like a slut, you're going to hell. You, you're holding hands with another man, you're going to hell. Jesus hates all of you. Okay? Well, now how's that going to help anything? Well, it isn't. So those are the two... I guess three different extremes that Christians can take. First is backpedaling and saying, oh wow, I guess I didn't realize being Christian offended you. I'm so sorry about being Christian. I'm so, I apologize for my beliefs to you because um, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I don't want to offend you. And you know, then on the other extremes, trying to force people to be Christians either by beating them over the head or by condemning them to, to their face. Um, Any rational human being and any Christian rational human being then risks offending. If you're going to stand for something, no matter what it is, you risk offending people. And that's something that is protected in our country, and thanks be to God for that. Uh, that all falls under freedom of speech. But Part of the, what freedom of speech means is that with everything you believe, with everything you do, and with everything you say, because you're permitted to engage in rational discussion freely in a rational society, you risk causing offense. And that risk is the price you pay for being able to say what you want to say. And the culture now is not willing to accept the risk. They would rather police what you have to say and police your beliefs so that everybody can exist in a real nice, comfortable, little padded cell and be babied for the rest of their lives. So uh, this is a long way around, I guess, addressing the question. Now, I'm not going to tell anybody what to do. But I am going to say that if you're working and you, you're wearing a t-shirt, and you're not saying anything or beating, browbeating somebody or throwing Bibles at them and saying, read this, you know. Uh, I don't think that there's anything wrong with you wearing a shirt. Uh, that's what I would say. And I would encourage people to continue to live like Christians and be Christians and know that you're... I mean, I said this last week or two weeks ago, being a Christian is not easy. And you're being thrown into harm's way by being a Christian, by being baptized, because you're being taken away from the devil and you're being separated from the world. And I had a, there's a great quote, and I said it, and I couldn't remember who it was from, but it's, now I know it's from St. Uh, 
Basel of Caesarea, who said there will come a day when the world has gone mad and they will look at all of those who have not gone mad and they will hate them and they will say to them, you are not like us, you are mad. <laughs> That's the culture of the world and Christianity is removed from the world. You as Christians are removed from the world. You live in the world, but you are not of the world. You're not of the nature of the world. So somebody who is offended by your beliefs, put, yeah, that's more polite than what I was gonna say, thank you. Bill. Mm -hmm. So, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I mean, and like Jim said, I'm a Christian. Like it or don't like it. That's the way it is. D don't apologize yeah. for it. I mean, I have friends who apologize for things that Martin Luther said. Oh, I'm really so, on behalf of the whole Lutheran Church, I apologize for that. Well, don't. I apologize that our liturgy calls you a sinner. I'm not going to apologize for that. Do you want to know why? Because you are a sinner and I'm going to keep calling you a sinner. Don't, don't apologize for Christianity. Don't apologize for the gospel. The gospel is and always has been uh, an, uh, opposed by the world. It's always been different from the world. It's always been uh, something that the world hates and persecutes and tries to devour. Look at the history of the church. The church hasn't grown in prosperity. The church has grown in trial and tribulation. The seeds of the church are watered with the blood of martyrs. And you can bet that on their deathbeds, they didn't apologize for what they believed. They were fed to the beasts because they wouldn't recant what they believed. And look at your heritage. Because arguably the one man who founded this denomination, which is a, it's a bad thing to say historically and theologically, but I'm trying to make a point here, stood in front of essentially the council that represented the entirety of the church on earth and said, I will not recant. I'm not going to apologize for the words that Jesus says, and I'm not going to, going to apologize for who he is and who he has made me to be. But this then is also why when you follow Jesus and you do what Jesus does and say what Jesus says, etc., that you don't have any enemies. Jesus doesn't have any enemies, so you don't have enemies. So even as you don't apologize for Christ and what he has done and who you are in him, you also don't hate anybody who hates you. Does that all, does that all make sense? Is this answering your question or am I just dancing around it? Okay. I wanted to have something to go back to people and say, you know, this is. Yeah. Well, and now I know some Christians who enjoy ethnic cuisine and who went to the ethnic grocery store that was run by Muslims wearing t shirts with a picture of a crucifix on them, and they walked into the door and realized what they were doing and did go back out and change their shirts before they went in. Not because they were ashamed, but out of respect. Okay? So, but those are two separate things, because you don't, you also, this falls into one of my extremes. I'd say this is the whole Kogan extreme. Knowing, premeditatively, knowing that you're going into some kind of a hostile place and then dressing yourself purposely to cause offense. Now that's not a proper use of the gospel, it's not a proper use of Christ. Using Christ to cause offense intentionally is a false use of the gospel. Okay. Any other questions on this vein? Okay, pay attention to the collect of the day 
and pay attention to the readings of the day and the sermon today. Why? Because you should anyway. <laughs> uh, but the, the reason I'm saying this is because all of today is teaching to you what I've been working through with you in this Bible study about the Ten Commandments and about the law. So now you see that I'm not just some punk kid who's coming in with new ideas, uh, making stuff up, because I'm saying to you what the church says to you. So listen to this from the collect. If you didn't notice it when I prayed it earlier, um, give us an increase, almighty and everlasting God, give us an increase of faith, hope, and charity, and that we may obtain what you have promised, make us love what you have commanded. Now, this sort of flies in the face of everything that you think you know as a Lutheran. Why? Well, because you're taught, works are no avail. Your good works are to no avail. You can't earn your salvation. But look at this, that we may obtain what you have promised. Make us love what you have commanded. And the uh, gospel for today is the Good, Sam the Good Samaritan. And there are a couple things. So I'm kind of spoiling the sermon for you. I'm sorry, but I'm, um, it all ties in. So, I mean, listen carefully to the readings, all of them, and then to some of these points in the sermon that tie in here. But the, the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan, which is what it is, it's just a parable, comes as a response to a question. Do you remember what the question is off the top of your head? Well, it's, so uh, the initial question to Jesus is posed by a lawyer. What do I have to do to be saved? Yeah, that's it. What, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Okay. And now I'll guarantee you that you've heard at least one sermon that said, well, he asked the wrong question because he asked what he should do. And it's not about what you do. But the, a sermon that starts like that or that contains that kind of a message is wrong. And that sermon is addressing the wrong question. And here's why. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus. Jesus. What does the law say? Lawyer. Well, the law says to love God and to love my neighbor. Jesus. You have answered rightly. Do these things and you will live. Whoops. Sometimes we overlook the words of Jesus. Sometimes we approach Scripture with what we think Scripture should say, and we jump over the little bits where it tells us that it's not saying what we think it should say. You have answered rightly. Do all of these things, and you will live. Follow the law of God, and you will live. Live this way. Do these things. So there is... There are things that you must do. There are things you must obtain. And then the question is, oh, well, <laughs> okay, I'll love my neighbor, but who, who is my neighbor, though? <laughs> because depending on how many people you know, are in that radius of your neighbor, depending on how far out that radius goes, it does get harder and harder to love your neighbor. Well, your neighbor is your spouse. Oh, okay, some days it's easier than others to love your spouse, but by and large, you think, oh, well, I can love my spouse. Yeah, that'll be an easy thing to do. I can love my spouse. My spouse is my neighbor. Okay. Your spouse is your family. Okay, you know, I've, you fight with your siblings now and then. You might not see eye to eye with your parents every time, but I think I can probably, I can probably love my neighbor if it's just my spouse and my family. Your neighbor is your in-laws. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Well, who? Uh, okay. And this is not a commentary on my marriage. Again, I know I say this a lot. I'm just using it as an example. So think about it. Uh, you know, your mother-in-law is your, is your neighbor. Can you love your mother-in-law? Sure. Yes. <laughs> oh, let's see. I'm, I'm not trying to trap anybody. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, yeah, I, you know... My in-laws are, are pretty good. I think I, can, I think I can get along with my in-laws. I can love them. Okay, so my neighborly group is expanding outward, slowly, slowly. Okay, how about your next-door neighbor? You know the guy we talk about in Bible class all the time who doesn't take care of his lawn, who blows his leaves onto your side, who, uh, 
lets his dog into your backyard. What about that neighbor? <laughs> okay, so loving your neighbor. All right, your, your physical next door neighbor. Okay, that's fine. How about your whole block? You can love your spouse. You can love your family, your in-laws, your next door neighbor. Maybe. How about your whole block? Can you love your whole block? Could you love everybody? Your block is just bigger than everybody else's. Yeah, okay. How about everyone in your town? How about everyone in your county? How about everyone in your state? <laughs> well, I'm just trying to emphasize this rippling effect. So somewhere, and this is the, this is the thing about your neighbor, okay? Your neighbor has to be either one person or every person. Your neighbor has to be an extreme. It can never be, you can never draw the line and say, well, I'm going to love these rings outward, but I'm going to draw the line here. Why? Because then the line becomes arbitrary. And honestly, if you take the extreme and say, my neighbor is only the one person, that is sort of arbitrary too, because why is it only that one person? And what's stopping it from expanding outward? So honestly, the only way you really can define your neighbor is by saying your neighbor is everybody. And then it starts, it does start to get harder. So the, the lawyer is a smart man. Oh, okay. Well, I see what you're saying, Jesus. I got to love my neighbor. But, but let's define this. Let's put some parameters on what it means to be a neighbor or to have a neighbor. Because depending on who my neighbor is, I may or may not love him as I ought. Okay. So, um, well, you, you'll hear more about that. But anyway, so this, this idea that the law is still alive. Christ doesn't come to get rid of the law. The law still exists. The law is still alive. And um, true or false, Christians are still under the law. True. Yes, it is true. You are still under the law. Now, what are you not under? as it relates to the law. You're still under the law, which is good, again, because the law is the will and the character of God. Jesus looks at his face in the mirror and he sees the Ten Commandments. Okay? We're not under the condemnation of the law. Yeah, that's exactly right. So you're still under the law, you're just not under the law's condemnation. So then this is the question, you know, the, uh, the last days, right? So. For what sins are you going to be condemned on the last day? For which trespasses against the Ten Commandments will you be condemned? Or will the unbelieving world be condemned? Well, but our sins have been forgiven. Yeah, so how many of them? Okay, so then how many of them are you going to be condemned for? Exactly. You're not going to be condemned for trespasses against the Ten Commandments because the condemnation of the Ten Commandments has already been delivered. The judgment that said you broke the Ten Commandments, you cheated, you lied, you stole, you hated your neighbor's guts, you robbed a bank. Uh, <laughs> every week, every week, okay? All of that... All of those trespass or those the punishments, the declarations from the bench that you are guilty have already been cast forth. And you think, well, I never even took the stand. I was never even there. How could this already have been rendered? Well, because Christ has taken it. In the stripes upon his back, the nails in his hands and feet, the thorns upon his head the wound in his side, the weight of sins uh, upon him on the cross, it all preaches to you that you are not condemned for your trespasses against the law. The law will not condemn you. Which is why I talk about turning away from Christ. So when you're under Christ, you're under Christ's judgment. But if you decide, no thanks, Jesus, and you leave, what's he going to do for you? When you're underneath an umbrella in the middle of a thunderstorm, you're nice and dry. 
But what is the umbrella going to do when you decide, I don't need this, I'm going to stay dry by myself, I'm going to live my own life, and you chuck it out into the bushes and walk out into the sidewalk? <laughs> it's not going to keep you dry. There's no magic bubble that sits over your head like in a cartoon that's going to catch that. Okay, do you sort of, are you tracking here? Are you following what I'm saying about the law? Okay, so you're still under the law. You're just not under the law's condemnation. Um, so that's why you know, there's this great thing in the confessions, in the apology uh, of the Augsburg Confession, and it's a very divisive statement. And you've maybe heard it before. It's caused and is causing a lot of troubles in the church. Because people don't know what it means or think it means something else. Uh, and don't understand the law. So let me find it. For the law always accuses and terrifies consciences. Okay. It does not justify because a conscience terrified by the law flees before God's judgment. Okay, so the law always accuses. Lex semper accusat. The law always accuses. But what's missing from that statement? It's going to accuse you. What is it not going to do? It's not going to condemn you. The law can accuse all it wants because it can't condemn you anymore. The fangs of the law's condemnation have been removed. The tips from the darts of accusation that the devil throws your way have been removed. No accusation is really going to stick against you as long as you can point to Christ and say, yeah, but he has died for me and now lives in me, and I in him. So, then the question becomes, okay, so I'm made alive in Christ, Christ has taken my condemnation, I've received his forgiveness, I have his life, in the sense that he now lives in me, what do I do? Because obviously you can't keep living your life the same way that you used to live. So the relationship that you have has to have some boundaries now. And the uh, Ten Commandments, the law of God, becomes some relationship boundaries. So like your relationship with the Grand Canyon has boundaries. Why? Because the Grand Canyon and its authorities don't want you to dive over the edge and fall in. So there are some boundaries there for that relationship. Uh, your marriage has Boundaries. You have to have boundaries in a relationship. There are some things that you don't say, uh, even if you hate your in-laws, since you know, you, you, you've decided that your circle of neighbors doesn't expand beyond your family. <laughs> if that's the case, you should probably come talk to me anyway. But um, your circle of, of neighbors doesn't expand beyond your family, and you just hate your in-laws' guts. Uh, well, you know, you can't really, you can't live that way. Yes. Is this a correct analogy of accusation and condemnation in that if you're accused of a crime, you go to court and you're found not guilty. So you're accused, but you're not condemned. Here's an accusation. Um, now, the accusation may be true. Well, and in this case, the accusation is true. The law is nothing if not truthful. So the accusations of the law are truthful accusations. So you trespass against the Ten Commandments, say, you, uh, you stole. And the Ten Commandments say, ah, you have stolen. That's an accusation. Bill Heitman stole from the store. That's what the Ten Commandments say. That's an accusation against you. But it doesn't go to the point where, it doesn't go to sentencing, shall we say. Because the sentence has already been administered. Uh, okay. So, um, that's, 
in the last you know, few minutes that we have now, uh, talking about the guidelines of behavior, the guidelines now of your relationship. What does it mean that you have entered into this relationship with, with God, or rather that he's entered into this relationship with you, that you live a new life? Well, how do you know how you're supposed to live in this new life? Remember last week we talked about the Ten Commandments showing you that good and evil do exist and pointing you towards good and pointing you away from evil. That's part of your relationship. Now that you're living this new life, uh, <clears throat> the law sets the boundaries for how you function in your relationship. The law is the curb of error and the rule. Sure, yeah. Well, that's, so that's getting into what they call the three uses of the law. So basically what I'm talking about now uh, is what is labeled the third use of the law. However, I think that's a bad label because it makes everybody think that it's the least important. And in fact, it's the most important, actually. It's the most important use of the law, and it's the primary function of the law. Now, you can't say this when you're at the seminary, but now I'm out from under their thumb. Okay? So you can say... The primary use of the law is not that the law is going to accuse you of your sins. The primary use of the law, according to the law's fundamental nature, character, and purpose, is that it points you towards good and directs you away from evil and guides you along the way. Right? So... Uh, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. There's all this language about being pilgrims and walking the way. And this is the way the early church talks about it, too. So here you are. Um, I'm a really good artist. Here you are, and you're on the way. And you're just walking. You're walking on the way. That's your life, walking the way. And uh, this is the way. This out here is off the way. Well, what's stopping you from going off the way? What is showing you where the boundaries of walking the way are? Well, writing sideways is hard. Okay, here it is. So now you're, this is a, a good illustration to show you how the word takes on two meanings, how it can be used two separate ways. So you're walking here, the, the road has a little bit of leeway, you know, you kind of go like this, and that's all right, right? You're on it, you're having a good time. And then, whoops, I'm out here now. Well, now you see there's this line, there's this borderline, and the law here that is your your markers on the edge of the way, they're telling you, hey, this is, this is the way. This is how you do it. Just keep following this marker. Keep doing what you're doing. It's all going to be fine until you step over the edge. And say, hey, that's not the way. That's not the way. This is the way. That's not the way. You need to get back over here or you're going to die. Because if you keep walking out on that part of the trail, or if you're out in the woods, you're off the beaten path, you're going to die. You, really, you need to get back here. Okay, there it is, that's a curb. But then once you're back here, what's it doing again? Hey, this is the way. Keep walking it, keep living it. Here's what you do. Keep following Jesus, Bruce. Now we learned in catechism class, three purposes of all the curb being here. Yep. That's the only thing I remember about that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, midweek will be starting soon if you want to sit in. I'll, I can, I'll, I'll have you in my class. <laughs> um, no, I mean, that's what they say. Three uses of the law. Uh, the law is going to show you your sins. The law is going to stop you from committing your sins. And the law is going to show you what the will of God is. Uh, what, I'm, uh, what I'm arguing against is looking at the law and saying that the primary use of the law, the one thing the law is really the best at and is supposed to do more than anything else is to tell you that you're bad. Is to yell at you when you step off the path. Does the law do that? Yes, it does. Is that the main purpose of the law, the law's fundamental purpose, nature, character? Since 
since the law first became the law? No. Not at all. Every word is used two ways. And when you live in Christ, you walk the way. The law is Christ. Guiding your path on the way. Okay? So there's this great quote, and maybe this will answer your question, Bill, just about the courtroom setting. And this is from C.S. Lewis, from his Reflections on the Psalms, which, by the way, is a really easy read if you want to read about the Psalms. C.S. Lewis, uh, quite a delightful little read. You can get through it in a day. It's really easy. But he says this, the reason for uh, requests for judgment in the Psalms, and I'll interrupt the quote, because you would think that prayers and requests for judgment, oh Lord, let your judgment be upon us. You'd think that if the law really were as bad as you're supposed to think that it is, that a judgment upon you would be a bad thing, and that you wouldn't be praying for a judgment. And yet, the Psalms pray for that very thing. So obviously, the way we've been taught to think about the law isn't the way the Bible thinks about the law. The primary function of the law, the way that we're taught to think about it, isn't the primary function of the law according to Scripture. So the Christian prays for judgment. Now we touched on this already a little bit. Why? Because you know that you have nothing to fear on the day of judgment because the judgment has already been rendered according to Christ and that trespasses against the law are uh, acquitted to you because they've been put upon Christ. Okay, so when the judgment comes, you are not the one that's being blasted. So uh, the reason for these judgment requests soon becomes very plain. The ancient Jews, like ourselves, think of God's judgment in terms of an earthly court of justice. The difference is that the Christian pictures the case to be tried as a criminal case with himself in the dock. And he doesn't contest it either. So when you know that when you go to court, you're basically pleading guilty because you know that you've done it. Whatever accusation is brought up against you, you know that you really do deserve the accusation. So you think of God's judgment in this way then, uh, that you're in a courtroom, that you're guilty, and that it's, you're being sentenced. But the Jew pictures it as a civil case with himself as the plaintiff. The one, the Christian, hopes for acquittal. Or rather for pardon. The other, the Jew, hopes for a resounding triumph with heavy damages. So you as a Christian can pray for judgment because you know that in the judgment of God, there is pardon rendered for you. It's strange because in your guilty plea, that's when the acquittal takes place. It doesn't make any sense according to the logic of a human courtroom. Anybody who goes in and says, I'm 100% guilty, well, you know, you know you're going you're to be put away. Nobody is going to go in and say, I'm guilty. Can, you just, can we just you know, wipe the record here? Can we just wipe it clean? I already said I was guilty. You can just let me go now. I've really learned my lesson. Okay. <laughs> um, doesn't work that way. But in the divine court of the Lord, it does. So now, you know, here we are. We're on the way. We've got the law. We've got our boundaries. We know the uh, guidelines of our behavior within the context of our relationship. We know what we should be doing and what we should not be doing. We know what is going to keep us on the path and what's going to take us off. And um, every relationship has to have boundaries, like I said. When your in-laws come to visit, you refrain from saying certain things that you might otherwise have said. Why? Well, you're keeping peace. There are boundaries in place. And you all know what I'm talking about. Whether it's in-laws, family, uh, distant relatives, friends, or just people you run into on the street. Oh, I know so-and-so is really 
blah, 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 about such and such, so we don't talk about this with that person. Okay? There are guidelines for every kind of an interaction and every type of relationship, and your relationship with the Lord is no different. There are guidelines for that too. But here's the thing. Guidelines, uh, <laughs> like any word, are used in two ways. The question then is, for what purpose are the guidelines implemented? Primarily for love. You care for another person, you care about the feelings of another person, so there are guidelines in your relationship with that person so that you don't hurt them. Because I want to take care of them. Uh, but, and we'll use the example of children here, guidelines also then uh, are established you know, for better and for worse, and punishment becomes for worse. So that when you don't do the thing that's good for you and you do the thing that's bad for you, then there is, in a sense, some retaliation from the relationship boundaries. Hey, you know, you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to be within this way and you've gone out. That's bad. Now there's got to be something that's going to take you back. Uh, so punishing trespasses, teaching right from wrong, developing a moral compass, all things that the law does for you. However, what you have to say, though, is that it's never, that the boundaries, especially with, uh, as we discuss the law, they never exist primarily for the purpose of punishment. They always exist primarily for the purpose of love and leading and guiding and taking you where you need to be and protecting you, pointing you towards the good things, pointing you away from the evil things. Now, why can the boundaries of a relationship not primarily be geared toward punishment or uh, have their roots found in punishment. I'm going to set up. Yeah, why must the boundaries of a relationship be rooted in love and not in punishment? And an example here, I'll give you an example of punishment. I'm going to make this law. And this is how some people view God, by the way. I'm going to make this law, and I'm going to make it so nobody can keep it. Isn't that going to be fun? But I'm going to tell them they have to keep it. And then every time they don't, I'm going to zap them. That's going to be really fun. I'm just going to punish the bejeepers out of those people. And then they'll learn to love me. Rhonda. Again, not a not a commentary on my marriage. Not a commentary on what? On my marriage. Oh, my God. <laughs> but my laws love So I'm doing the right, but there were times when when uh, I wanted to punish, or they wanted to punish me, or something. So, but. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, you're always going to trespass relational boundaries. And then in a case like that, the question is, how are you going to recover from a trespass? Are you going to drive a person further off the path and drive yourself further off the path with you, hating their guts and cursing them to the day you die? Or are you going to strive towards trying to get back to the holy things, uh, seeking reconciliation and forgiveness and love? Right? To the care of her and the nurse. Okay. Work at the okay. I mean. And I apologize when I was taking care of her. So. Well, yeah, I mean, that's. We're all sinful and we all do things that we know are wrong. <laughs> exactly. You and, know, and we're gonna we're gonna think thing whether it's in the law or your spouse. You're gonna think negative things, but we're forgiven for those things if we ask God for repentance of those thoughts or our feelings. You are forgiven, yes. And the now the temptation is always to use your status as being forgiven as an excuse. 
which is what we talked about last week, that you can say, well, I'm forgiven, so it doesn't matter what I do, because Jesus is just going to forgive me for anything. Well, no, because if you're doing that, then you're not actually on the way. You just are walking away. But, but uh, well, if you keep doing the same thing over and over, you're not really attentive to those things. Well, that, that gets tricky. Now, when I was in confirmation class, I had a... The guy teaching the class said that if you keep committing the same sin over and over again, God is going to stop forgiving you because he's going to see you're not sorry for it. And that haunted me for years. I struggled with that for years because I couldn't imagine that God would do that because everybody has sins that they struggle with. Everybody, everybody has their own particular weakness and the devil knows it and the devil will exploit it. So you fall into many traps, but the traps you fall into the most are the ones revolving around your particular vices or troubles. Well, so Well, yeah, I mean there in some cases there is a certain amount of struggle to get up and go to church which by the way and it's that way and so that's one of those things it's not just Right. Do you, is it a struggle or is it easy? Is it a struggle? Do you war within yourself and say, I really know I need to go to church. I really know that it's good for me there, that Jesus has things for me. He's going to feed me supper. He wants me there because he loves me and he cares for me. But boy, I'm tired and I really just don't want to go. But I really should, but I don't want to go. Is there that, I mean, because that's sort of the human thing. Okay, well, <laughs> so, but, but if it's a struggle, though, like when you say, well, I don't really want to go, but I know there's going to be hell to pay, so I'm going to go. Well, then you've already faced a conflict in your mind. I don't want to go, but I'm going to go. So there's a conflict there. Now, that's sort of the Christian life. There's always going to be conflict, both outside and inside. There's turmoil between... Uh, you know, the, as they say, the flesh and the spirit. The good that I would do is not what I do, and the evil that I would not do is the very thing I do. Okay, so there is a, a warring there. But to say then that, oh, well, I guess Jesus didn't forgive St. Paul because he kept doing the good, or doing the evil he didn't want to do. Lisa. Sometimes I get upset Right. Then I have a horrible feeling yeah. inside until I go apologize to mm-hmm. them. I just, I just, I don't know. I just, well, I that's. They're, it's not that they're not my friend. I just, mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, sometimes even if you think a person is your best friend, uh, to the point even that they're your, like a blood they could be considered your blood relative, that you'd never ever think that you hate them in the moment you hate them. And you speak to them as, and you, yeah, you you speak to them as if you hate them, and you you trespass the relational boundaries, and then there's something that needs to bring you back. You can keep on your trajectory, or you can, in that example, heed your conscience. But the that's one thing the law is going to do. When the law accuses you, you're doing something bad. You're doing something bad. You're doing something bad. That's it saying, flee from this evil thing. Get away from this. What are you doing? Don't you know that this is the place you should be? That's the place where everything is good. That's the place where life is. Why are you walking away from that? Get back on that. That's the law. That's the law speaking. Jessica. How long have you had a conflict after How long do you to resolve it until the other person gives in? How long do you live? And how long do you love? Forever. Okay. Not just seven times, Jessica. But seven times, 70 times. Okay? And and this is why, though. This is why. This is practical, um, practical theological advice for your life. Jesus doesn't have any enemies. Now, if Jesus doesn't have enemies, and you follow Jesus, and you do the things that Jesus does, do you get to have enemies? No, you don't. 
So, when somebody decides that they are going to be your enemy, do you accept their decision and then decide, well, they said they wanted to be my enemy, so I guess I'll make them my enemy. No, you don't. So, it's a life of prayer and love and kindness and seeking reconciliation. And sometimes, you apologize and come in a repentant state even for things that you have not done. Sometimes you apologize and come repentant and seek reconciliation for perceived faults. Because at the root of every sin is pride and in relationships pride comes to the forefront because you say, well I'm not going to apologize to that jamoke. He's the one that hit me. I was at a red light. Why is he angry at me? I'm not going to apologize. That's his fault. I'm going to wait for him to apologize to me. And then he says, well, you stopped short at that red light. That was your fault. I couldn't stop in enough time. Well, if you hadn't been following so close behind, I'm in the right, you're in the wrong. And then nobody's ever going to seek apology. So at a certain point, you have to say, well, maybe I did stop a little short. I don't think that I did, but he thinks that I did. And it is possible that I was wrong, and it is very possible that I'm being just a little bit prideful. So I'm going to go and say, listen, uh, you're right. I did stop a little short. I apologize. I'm very sorry for that. And then nine times out of ten, he'll go, yeah, no, it was, it was really my fault. I, I wasn't paying attention and I, I hit you and I just felt bad so I blamed you. And then things are forgiven and the reconciliation. Now it doesn't always happen that way. <laughs> Sometimes it happens like this. I'm really sorry. I did stop short. Yeah, okay. I'm glad to hear you finally apologizing. And then when that happens, what do you do? <laughs> you say, you, well, yes, you, uh, you put up your extra filters and then you say, okay, okay. <laughs> okay, I'll just keep on loving this person. And I have made sure that that person is not my enemy. I'm going to love them and I'm going to care for them. Remember this, forgiveness is not... It, the idea, you know, well, we're going to forgive and forget. If it worked, it would be a great idea. But it's sort of... A, it's a nice thought, but not one that ever works. Because you're never going to forget. You're never going to forget the slight that somebody did to you. You're never going to forget the hurt that somebody caused you. You're never going to forget when somebody trespasses those boundaries and does something or says something they shouldn't. So forgive, forgiveness doesn't mean that you forget. Forgiveness means that you live as if you had forgotten, which is what makes forgiveness all the more difficult. Because you live as if you had forgotten all the while knowing and remembering what that person did. But you put it away. You don't hold on to it. You don't have a grudge against that person. Nancy. But that stop sign sign in your window. Your insurance company says keep your mouth shut. <laughs> <laughs> well, now see, you got me because I didn't factor that into my example. <laughs> uh, Yeah, okay, well. The point of the example <laughs> is that you, you, need, you need not follow the letter of the law. Right, follow what's at the heart of the law. Follow the meaning, not the letter, okay? So you get it, but this is all to say that, that the law doesn't exist to punish. God does not make the law and say, hey, I'm going to zap them every time they trespass. It's going to be a whole lot of fun. You know, God's not up there going, dance, pretty boy, dance. Uh, right? He, the, the law is there out of love. And the reason why the boundaries have to be established out of love is because if they aren't, if the grounds for establishing rules is only so that you can punish, it's not love and it's not a relationship. It's abuse. Abuse. God is not an abusive God. 
He is not the father that takes his children and says, if you don't shape up, there's going to be hell to pay in this household. Okay? He's not the God who does that. He's not the father who does that. So all of the guidelines for your relationship with God and his, and, you know, his promises to you that bind him to act a certain way are all done out of love because remember this, he's never going to hurt you. As long as you have Jesus, you're never alone. Jesus is never going to leave you. Jesus is never going to hurt you. Okay? That includes the law. I have a quick question. Yes. Jesus has no enemies. But what about the devil? That's not an enemy. Uh, the devil is a strange thing because the devil really. We could talk all class about this. Okay. The, the short answer is this the devil, think of him like a dog on a leash. Yeah, so the devil is created as an angel, and the angels have one job to do, and that is serve God. So the devil thinks that he's gotten away scot-free, but the thing about the heavenly beings is they can't not do what they are created to do. And the perfect example of that is the crucifixion. I wrote a whole article about that a year or two ago that was published in a journal, um, Satan causes the crucifixion. That's my whole argument. Going through all of the Gospels, looking at all the different passion narratives, and finding the place where Satan is actually the one behind the curtain, pulling the strings, possessing people. He's in Judas, possessing the crowd, making people want to kill Jesus. And then you ask the question, well, doesn't that make him God's enemy? He caused Jesus' death. Doesn't that make him the enemy? Who allowed him to do it? And what purpose did Jesus' death serve? So you see, he serves God, in a sense, even when he thinks he's rebelling. He's a dog on a leash. He can't really do much, because he tries to run too far out of that lawn, and he gets jerked back on that chain. So in a sense, he is an enemy of God, because he is opposed to God. But Jesus has no enemies. You see, it, it, it doesn't work both ways. This is a well, it should be a two-way street, but it isn't. So you have no enemies, Marla, because Jesus has no enemies. Meaning, when you look at people, you love everybody, or you ought to, because that's what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't hate anybody, and he doesn't make anyone into his enemy. Now, many people are the enemies of Jesus in the sense that they have made an enemy out of him. They hate him, and they are opposed to him. But when he looks at them, he's not going to hate them. Does that sort of make sense? Okay. That's about as fast as I can answer that. <laughs> okay, anything else quickly before we go to church? All right. We'll see you in church.